It is the best-selling book in history. No volume ever written has been more loved and quoted. And its words, sometimes simple and sometimes mysterious, should always be studied carefully. It is the Bible, the Word of God. Welcome to Bible Answers Live, providing accurate and practical answers to all your Bible questions. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this broadcast, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, here's your host from Amazing Facts International, Pastor Doug Batchelor. Hello, friends. Would you like to hear an amazing fact? Martin Strill from Slovenia is certainly the world's greatest marathon swimmer. Having swum down five of the planet's mightiest rivers, the Yangtze, Parana, Mississippi, Danube, and Amazon, he holds four Guinness World Records in long-distance open-water swimming. During his adventures, he's been attacked by piranhas, struck by lightning, and sickened by polluted water. Strell took on the mighty Amazon River in 2007, swimming the entire length of the river from the headwaters in Peru to the Brazilian port city of Belém, a total of 3,273 miles in 66 days. That represents the distance greater than the width of the Atlantic Ocean. Did you know the Bible talks about a prophet that survived underwater for three days? Stay with us, friends. We're going to learn more on this edition of Bible Answers Live. You're listening to Bible Answers Live, accurate and practical answers to your Bible questions. Welcome, listening friends, to Bible Answers Live. And as you've heard, if you have Bible questions, we'll do our best to answer them. Just give a call, 800-463-7297. That's 800-GOD-SAYS. That's the acronym for it. 800-463-7297 with your Bible questions. Great chance you'll get your question on tonight's program. Lines are wide open right now, and we are live. You can not only listen here on this radio station, but you can watch on our Facebook page. If you want to see what's going on here in the studio, that would be the Doug Batchelor Facebook page or the Amazing Facts Facebook page. And I am Doug Batchelor. My name is John Ross. Good evening, friends. And uh, as we always do, let's stop the program with prayer. Dear Father, we thank you that we're able to open up your word and study together. Such a wonderful opportunity for us to just do this uh, international Bible study and get into your word. So, Lord, we pray for your blessing, pray for your spirit to guide. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Pastor Doug, you know, uh, just before we, we went on the air, we were speaking about the incredible feats of uh, this person. I forget his name. Martin Strell. Yeah. Martin Strell, who, who not only swam some of these great rivers, but you mentioned that he also swam um, from Africa to Italy. So he swam across the Mediterranean. That alone would be an incredible feat, let alone all these other rivers that he swam. Oh, yeah. And he swam the rivers in uh, Slovenia. He swam... Um, the Colorado and the, the guy's just a machine. He, and he, you know, look at him. He's a, he's a pretty uh, robust athlete. <laughs> For, <laughs> I think now he's about 66 years of age, but uh, yeah, he just uh, loved to swim. And the story is that when he was young, his father was pretty rough on him and he'd come home from work angry and he'd be in trouble. His father would chase him. 
And his father would not chase him into the river nearby. He'd run into the river and he'd stay out there and swim until his dad got cooled off and went away. So he got <laughs> used to swimming to save his life. But um, we're talking about one river that he hadn't swum yet, and that's the Nile. And we were wondering what could be the reason for that. We thought, well, of course, there's real big crocodiles in the Nile. Yeah. <laughs> He's always had a support boat that goes with him. And when he was swimming the Amazon, he did get attacked by piranhas mm. at one point. And then his support boat brought the blood and meat. And if piranhas were in the area, then they looked like they were going to be a threat. They'd be throwing the meat over the other side to keep them away from uh, Martin. So, yeah, he's had some interesting adventures. And now he, he does lectures and he talks about, you know, keeping the world's rivers clean because he swam some rivers like the Yangtze in Mississippi. He said terribly polluted hmm. and it was just very sad. But uh, the Bible talks about, well, the Bible talks about swimming. It says Peter, when he saw that Jesus was on the shore, he jumped in the water, couldn't wait to, for the boat to get all the fish loaded up. And he jumped in the water and swam to Jesus. Then there's a prophet that did some swimming because he ran from God and he ended up taking a three-day submarine trip. And that would be, I think everyone knows, the prophet Jonah. You know, it's interesting if you read in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said that no prophet would be, no sign would be given to this generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so the son of man would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And in many ways, Jonah is a type of Christ. Of course, Jonah was asleep in a boat during a storm. Jesus was asleep in a boat during a storm. They woke up Jonah and said, we're perishing. They woke up Jesus and said, Master, we're perishing. Through waking up Jonah, the sailors had peace. Through waking up Jesus, the apostles had peace. It was through the sacrifice of Jonah that the ship was saved. And it's through the sacrifice of Christ that we are saved. And then Jesus said, as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, he says it a little differently in Luke. Jonah went a three days journey to Nineveh, entered the city, half a day's journey, 12 hours, and then preached in 40 days it would be destroyed. Jesus preached three and a half years and warned that the generation would not pass away until Jerusalem was destroyed. And so, you know, for one, it's three and a half days and 40 days. For Jesus, it's three and a half years and 40 years, because often a day is a year in prophecy. So Jesus said Jonah had many things that uh, helped us recognize, of course, Jonah coming out of the whale, that's a resurrection. And the resurrection of Christ being one of the greatest examples. Now we have a book that tells this, tells about this and more. Maybe some are wondering about that three days and three nights. They say, well, it doesn't match up because you've got You've got um, Friday night and Saturday night, but how do you get three nights out of that? We've got a book that will answer that. And the book is called The Sign of Jonah, and we'll be happy to send this to anyone in North America. It's yours for the asking. All you have to do is call and ask. The number to call is 800-835-6747. That is our resource phone line. And again, just ask for the book called The Sign of Jonah, and we'll be happy to get that to you. We know we do have those who are listening outside of North America. We're not able to send you the literature outside of the continent, but go to the Amazing Facts website, just amazingfacts.org, and you can actually read that at our mm -hmm. website. But here in North America, call and we'll be happy to send you the book. If you have a Bible question, the number to call for that is 800-463-7297, 800-463-7297. Uh, the uh, acronym there is God Says, 800-GOD-SAYS. 
Okay, we're going to go to Chris, listening in Florida. Chris, welcome to the program. Yes, hello. Hi, you're on, Chris. How you doing? Hi, thank you. Good, very good. Thank you, Pastor. I have a question to help me understand the difference between the, the chosen ones and the elect. Yeah, the words are actually similar. Uh, you can read, for instance, in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Jesus says in Matthew twenty-two fourteen, for many are called, but few are chosen. If you're called and you choose to accept the call, you are an elect. Um, elect simply means the ones who have been accepted. They're God's people because they've accepted his invitation and they've come to him. The elector, some people think the elect are only like the Jews. And I've, that's kind of dispensationalism. But anyone who accepts the, Jesus and follows him is elect. Matter of fact, you read in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul is writing principally here to Gentile believers, and he says, Therefore, as the elect of God, put on holy conversation, beloved, and so on. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we find even Gentiles referred to as the elect. And it almost seems, Pastor Doug, that there is uh, a choosing that we as individuals do. We choose Christ, and those who choose Christ are, in one sense, elected by Christ. So it's almost Christ's response to the personal decision that a person makes. And to be an elect, to be elected by Christ based upon our choice, well, there's those kind of benefits and blessings in store for those who are uh, elected by God or chosen by God. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Chris. Appreciate that. And, you know, we, we have a book that talks a little bit about, um, it's called Assurance. And uh, that book on Assurance talks a little, I think, about who the elect are. Yes. Uh, if you'd like to receive Justification that, Made Simple. Yeah. Assurance Justification Made Simple is the name of the book. And to receive it, the phone number is 800-835-6747. And again, ask for the book called Assurance, Justification Made Simple. We've got Noah listening in Illinois. Noah, welcome to the program. My question is, I'm wanting to know how you can share the 2300-day prophecy, which is found in Daniel 8.14 in like four minutes, or like under <laughs> 10 minutes. Well, uh, all right, for, let, me, let me see how we can do real quick. If you read in Daniel chapter 8, it talks about a beast power that would cast down the truth to the ground. And it says it would practice and prosper. Um, the angels are speaking and they say, how long until these things are accomplished? And the angel responds, 2,300 days and then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now, God has a sanctuary in heaven. He's got a sanctuary on earth. Um, the beast power was corrupting the truth from the sanctuary in heaven of our salvation by Christ, that Christ is there interceding for us. And the beast power was corrupting God's sanctuary on earth, the church. You are the temple of God. From the going forth of the commandment to rebuild Jerusalem, which you find in Daniel chapter 9, unto that 2,300 days, that goes to 1844. That's really when the, the age of the church of Laodicea began, and there was a special cleansing of the sanctuary, a revival in the church that took place, a whole new birth of God's people, um, and returning to the truth, cleansing them from the errors of the beast. And Christ entered into the final phase of his intercessory work in heaven. I think I did that in two and a half minutes. That's not the best explanation, but you asked me to do it quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that helps at all, Noah. But um, that, that's a quick summary of it. It's talking about, of course, the beast, casting the truth to the ground, practicing and prospering. It's defiling the people of God, blaspheming against God, both on earth and in heaven. 
So both in heaven and on earth, a cleansing began. And that started in 1844. When that's done, Jesus comes. Michael stands up and that's the end. Well, thank you. And we do have a lesson on it. We do. I was going to point out the lesson. It's called Right on Time. That's the name of the lesson. And of course, we'll send this to anyone for free. It's called Right on Time, Prophetic Appointments Revealed. And if you'd like to receive that, the number is 800-835-6747 and ask for the study guide called Right on Time. You know, one other thing, Noah and anyone listening, you may not know Amazing Facts has a quarterly magazine called Inside Report. And I recall our last article is on the uh, 2300-day prophecy. I think it's called 1844 Made Simple or something like that. But it, it does explain it, I think, in a very easy-to-understand format. And that is available at the Amazing Facts website. You can just look that up when you go there. Thanks for your call, Noah. We've got George listening in um, New Jersey. Yes. Right. <laughs> Good evening. How you doing this week? All right. Doing great. Uh, this week I have more or less a history kind of a question. Okay. I read a lot of um, writings by the early church fathers. You know, I've gotten some material on the apostolic fathers. I like, uh, you know, hearing about what they believed and some of their doctrines. And in the first three centuries, it appears that they were all pre, or most of them were all premillennial. But I don't see any of them that believed, I guess, what, what you teach, that the millennium is in heaven. Uh, not that that proves or disproves it, but it just seems funny that the early church, if it was taught you know, by the apostles in the early church, that none of the fathers discussed it or talked about it. So I was just curious about that, if you've ever seen that in any of the early church literature. Well, it's a good question. You know, I, I'm not sure how much the early fathers, and I read some of... Uh, of what the early fathers have written. Now you've got the one, you got some of the writings of the fathers that you're talking about the first two right. or three hundred years. Then you got the reformers, which is a whole other set of writings. Uh, then there was you know a period of time where you didn't have a lot of church writings. It was you know uh, Augustine and a few others, uh, Jerome. But um, I don't know. Now I'm wondering about Matthew Henry. He would be one of the Protestant writers or the Puritan writers. But yeah, it's a good question. I don't know. I don't know how much they all wrote about the millennium. Right. So I don't think they spent a lot of time writing about where the millennium was. And, and I don't recall reading any. I'm sure it's there, but I don't recall reading it myself. They're not too consistent if I look at them. Some of them believe that the millennium is just going to be the martyrs reigning. Some of them say it's all the Christians. So they're not really consistent anyway, you know. Well, you know, you've got that one chapter in Revelation chapter 20 that talks about it. And so I think that's probably why there's some uh, speculation about what that means. And, you know, we, like others, do our best to put the scriptures together and, and say, you know, what makes the most sense. Right. One reason we have the saints in heaven during the millennium is because we know that Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. Right. And I will come and receive you that where I am, ye might you might be. And he says, I will come again. So when he comes, he comes to receive us, to take us where he has prepared the places. The other reason is uh, in the popular left behind scheme of prophecy, um, they only, always have the earth populated. Right. But the Bible describes in several prophecies in Isaiah, Jeremiah, where the earth is completely vacated. Uh, it says the slain of the Lord covered the earth from one end to the other. There is no one to lament, mourn or bury. And then you can read in Jeremiah 4, uh, verse 23, where it says that uh, the cities were broken down and there was no man at the presence of the Lord. 
And so it describes this apocalyptic vision on the earth after the second coming where no one's alive. And then Second Peter, he says, um, the day of the Lord will come in which the elements melt with fervent heat. The earth and the things in it are burned up. So how life, how we could be on earth during the mm. millennium after that is hard to comprehend. There's, you know, two or three witnesses at least that say the earth is going to be, you know, completely scoured by some judgment for a period of time. And then ultimately God makes a new heaven and a new earth. So we take the position that we live and reign with Christ in heaven. Because I don't know what Christian wants to reign over the wicked during a, for a thousand years. I don't want that. And here we've got glorified bodies and they're still dying. It just doesn't seem to fit. Yeah. All right. I appreciate it. I thank you. Thanks so much. Appreciate your call. We do have a lesson on that if you haven't seen it already. Yes. And there might be some others wondering about the subject of the thousand years, the millennium. Our study guide on that topic is called a thousand years of peace. And of course, we'll send this to you for free. The number is 800-835-6747. As for the study guide, it's called a thousand years of peace. I grew up mostly in New York City. I was sent to many different boarding schools. Most of these schools told me that there was no purpose in life. And I saw in my home, people were not very happy, and I would think about suicide. Sharing a personal testimony can be one of the most powerful ways to win souls to Christ. That's why I'd like to invite you to discover and share a new presentation of my richest caveman testimony. It's now available on a special DVD from Amazing Facts. We've even included the award-winning Kingdoms in Time documentary that recently aired on the History Channel. To get your copy of The Richest Caveman, visit afbookstore.com or call 800-538-7275. For life-changing Christian resources, visit afbookstore.com. We've got Marie listening in the uh, Los Angeles area. Marie, welcome to the program. Hi there. Good evening, gentlemen. Hi. Hi. So my question is related to numbers. Um, I'm aware that, you know, there are numbers in the Bible that have significance, and I've downloaded the prophecy handout, the prophecy code handout, mm -hmm. which, you know, says that certain numbers represent particular things in the Bible. And I want to understand the significance of numbers in the believer's everyday life. So, for example, numbers are meant, numbers that might be mentioned in a dream or multiples of certain things occurring in a dream or noticing numbers recurring around as you're you know, kind of going about your day, you know, or maybe God even impressing like a specific dollar about for you to give to a ministry. So how do we draw the line between God trying to use numbers to talk to us and something like numerology? Well, that's a good question. By the way, you've got a good voice for radio and no one's ever told you that. Um, you know, my Thank wife you. is, <laughs> my wife, she loves numbers. She's always like doing the, the checkbook and she wants everything to add up and she gets so excited by it. I, on the other hand, math was not my subject. Um, but it is, it is clearly obvious that certain numbers appear in the Bible way beyond uh, what you would normally expect if they were just random. Numbers like 7 or 3 or 10, 40, 12. And um, you know, there seems to be some consistency in what their meaning is. As far as running into those numbers on a day-by-day -day basis, I'm not sure God is trying to talk to us through, you know, if, if you're invited to a, a, an event and you're given a seat in the stadium and you look and your seat is 666, I wouldn't worry about it. <laughs> you know, I would just sit in it. So there's some numbers are just, you know, their digits, uh, but uh, I think the numbers in the Bible do have meanings. So I don't know if that answers your question, Marie. Um, 
Well, what about the dream part? So if, if, if you've had dream, I know, you know, dreams can be dubious, you know, ways of having God speak to you. I've seen certain sermons that you wrote about how God speaks to us. Um, but I'm curious about that. Like, for example, when Joseph interpreted certain dreams and certain things at certain significance. Seven, yeah. When do we pay attention to those things and when should we actually dismiss them? Well, first of all, you'd want to know, before you analyze what does the number mean in a dream, you want to know what does the dream mean. And, um, you know, I think that, of course, you had the seven fat cows, seven skinny cows, seven fat grains, seven skinny grains. And in Daniel, uh, with Nebuchadnezzar, seven times would pass over him. Um, But they knew what the meaning of the dream was, and then the numbers took on relevance. So you've got to either, if you're having a divine dream, God is going to give you the interpretation or you need a friend that's got that gift. You know, something else, Pastor Doug, that's interesting. All of these dreams that had significance that we read about in the Bible, um, especially related to some symbol, they were dreams that were interpreted by the prophet, but they weren't necessarily the dream that the prophet had. Mm-hmm. For example, in the case of Pharaoh, Pharaoh had the dream, and then um, Joseph explained the dream. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has the dream. And then Daniel explains the dream. So God makes the explanation clear. Now, of course, there's other dreams that have symbols, but it's really a repeat of Daniel chapter 2 that Daniel has. So, you know, if we have a dream and we're trying to figure out what the numbers in our dream might mean, oh, I don't know. You could go some interesting places with that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, what I would do if I were you, Marie, is I'd just say, you know, Lord, if if I'm supposed to understand this, you got to give me the interpretation. And just leave it with him. By the way, Daniel had some dreams, and he didn't get the interpretation until a couple of years later. Right. So be patient. <laughs> if you're supposed to know, he'll make you know. All right. Well, thanks, thanks for your call. Yes. Next caller that we have is Sandra in New York. Sandra, welcome to the program. Yes. Th- thank you for taking my call. Um, my question is in reference to forgiveness. We're supposed to go through steps when we do wrong to somebody. So if I confess and then repent and then the reconciliation reconciliation is supposed to happen. But what happens if if I don't even know where the person is to reconcile with that person? And that's for yeah. forgiveness. Well, if if you've done something wrong and you have hurt somebody and you want to apologize, you do your best to contact them. If you can't, God is not going to hold you accountable for what you can't do. Um, You know, in my testimony, I explained before I was converted, I was a thief. I didn't need to be. I just kind of did it for the excitement. And I I broke into homes and stole things. Well, it was often at night and I was often (laughs) either drunk or inebriated. And I don't even know the address or who owned the house. So there's, you know, I told the Lord, I'm sorry. There's no way I can go back and contact those people. Um, And so I think, you know, the Holy Spirit will, he will impress you if there's things that you can write. If you can write certain wrongs, you should. But there's some things that you just, you can't deal with and you just have to trust that God forgives you. Uh, So sometimes there's a person you have a a problem with and you want to reconcile and, um, you know, they don't talk to you. So how do you do it? Well, you write them a letter maybe. And uh, just if they won't communicate, you put it in God's hands and say, I've done the best I can do, Lord. If there's anything more, show me. Otherwise, just have peace that he's forgiven you. So does that help? So how do I know? I know God is a loving father and he will forgive us if we ask for forgiveness. But how do I know um, I'm in the process of forgiveness from the Lord? 
how do you know you're in the process of forgiveness? Is that what you're asking? Yes. Well, coming from God. The Bible tells us if you repent of your sins, if you confess your sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's in First uh, John chapter 1, um, verse, verse nine. 9, yeah. So, uh, you know, you do that, and he promises that if you're repenting of your sins, he will always forgive if you are sincere. Tell him you're sorry, and then believe he forgives you. Uh, Jesus promised, all who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. And Christ tells us if our brother sins against us seven times in a day and seven times come and say, I'm sorry, you should forgive them. So if Christ is asking us to do that seven times in a day, will he do less? Obviously, Jesus is going to be very, very patient and merciful. And uh, so I don't think you need to worry about that, Sandra. And, you know, we do have um, some material that talks about three steps to heaven and how you can find that forgiveness. It's a book, and we'll be happy to share this with anyone. The book is called Three Steps to Heaven, and the phone line, phone line our resource phone line is 800-835-6747. And as for the book called Three Steps to Heaven, we'll be happy to send it out to anyone who calls. Luke is listening in, for, in Florida. Luke, welcome to the program. Yes, hello. Hi, Luke. We got about uh, a minute and a half. Can we do it? Yes, I think we can. My question is rather short. It pertains to Moses. When Moses approached Pharaoh for the first time, he said that they were going in the wilderness for three days and three nights, but they were leaving Egypt for good. So why did Moses say that? Well, you know, I think if they had gone uh, directly, a three-day journey, they could have come to the first place of sacrifice. He wanted to get uh, a three days distance from Egypt because it was a great abomination to the Egyptians to offer animal sacrifice. And and matter of fact, uh, when the Israelites moved into Egypt, it says every shepherd was an abomination to the Egyptians. So I don't know that uh, that he was saying their journey would be done in three days. I don't even know if Moses knew exactly where they were going. Well, I take it back. God said they'll come to this mountain and worship me. He did tell him that. But I think Mount Sinai was further than three days. So I think maybe the first three days was where they could uh, pause and sacrifice. So are you there, Luke? Yeah, I'm here. So what he was just saying was we need to go three days into the wilderness to sacrifice to our God, basically. Yeah, you know, it is an interesting question because you're right. If if uh, Pharaoh had said, okay, I'll let you go three days, make sure and come back, Moses <laughs> would have said, not on your life, we're not coming back. He did say, let my people go, but it sounded like he said, let my people go that they may serve me. And um, uh, yeah, I think it was they wanted to get three days out of Egypt so that they could uh, offer sacrifice. I think it may have been a three-day journey to even get across the Red Sea and, you know, a day's journey into the wilderness. So good question, Luke. I'm kind of dancing around because I'm not exactly sure. Yeah, I've heard that question before, and we're wondering, maybe, uh, you know, Moses was under the impression that if he could get Israel out of Egypt for three days at least, then perhaps God could do a greater work of deliverance. That's one explanation as to why he just says three days. Of course, he knew Pharaoh wouldn't do it. And, of course, it was after three days Jesus rose, and so the, and the Exodus is a type of the plan of salvation. So uh, often great things happened after three days in the Bible. 
Anyway, hey, thank you, Luke, for your question, and I hope that helps a little bit. Friends, this music does not mean we're going away. We're just going to catch our breath. We'll be back in just a moment. Stay tuned. Bible Answers Live will return shortly. If you enjoy hearing solid biblical answers on Bible Answers Live, you can have those same insights at your fingertips through the Amazing Facts Prophecy Study Bible. The updated hardcover version is available at its lowest price ever and includes the complete set of Amazing Facts 27 study guides, plus a Bible numbers and symbols chart and eight pages of colorful maps. This best ever Bible gives you a biblical cyclopedic index. Words of Christ in Red, Chronology of the Old Testament, along with Doug Batchelor's How to Study the Bible feature, and much more. Call us at AF Bookstore to learn more about it at 1-800-538-7275. The Amazing Facts Prophecy Study Bible stands apart from other Bibles, giving you the same solid answers you hear each week on Bible Answers Live. Order your copy today at afbookstore.com or by calling 1-800-538-7275. The Bible tells us that salvation, of course, emanates from God. So we need to know something about God to rightly understand and embrace salvation. Yet in the church today, there's a great deal of confusion about the nature of God. The Bible says God is one God, but is He three persons? Is Jesus also eternal God? Because Jesus is the Son of God, does that mean there was a time when He did not exist or He was brought into existence? Is the Holy Spirit a person or is He just the force and the energy that God uses to communicate? You know, I thought this was so important, I really felt led of the Lord to write a book on the subject called Exploring the Trinity, One God or Three. In this book, we answer those very important questions. We talk about the history of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, as well as the history of the Holy Spirit in the church and how it has been much debated. This is something we really need to understand because Jesus said eternal life comes from knowing God. You're listening to Bible Answers Live where every question answered provides a clearer picture of God and His plan to save you. So what are you waiting for? Get practical answers about the good book for a better life today. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. To receive any of the Bible resources mentioned in this evening's program, call 800-835-6747. Once again, that's 800-835-6747. Now, let's rejoin our hosts for more Bible Answers Live. We are back listening, friends. This is Bible Answers Live, and if you have a Bible question, we invite you to give us a call. The number is 800-463-7297. That's 800-GOD-SAYS, and we are also streaming this broadcast on Facebook, and that would be at the Amazing Facts Facebook page or the Doug Batchelor Facebook page. And I am Doug Batchelor. And I'm Jean Ross. We've got uh, Roland listening in Tennessee. Roland, welcome to the program. Hi, Roland. You're on the air. Thank you, Pastor Doug. Thank you, Pastor Sean. I, I have a question here. I read in Daniel chapter 2 that the last um, of the empire's would be a divided one. In verse 41, it says the kingdom shall be divided. And then on verse 43, I read that 
they shall not cleave to one another, speaking of these guys coming together. And then, you know, the stone comes and it finishes that uh, prophetic vision. But then on Revelation 13, I see on verse 3 that the whole, wa- the whole world wanders after the beast. So I see a union there. And I'm confused about the disunity in one verse and the unity on the other verse. And they're both times of the end here. So I was wondering what your thoughts were. Yeah, good question. I think the key there is that uh, there will never be, as Daniel foretold, a one world kingdom politically. Um, And, you know, several have tried, everyone from Charlemagne, Kaiser Wilhelm, Hitler, Mussolini, Napoleon, they all tried to sort of reunite the fractured Roman Empire that broke into 10 parts. But um, there will be one world religion. And, you know, you're going to end up having a confederacy of a number of nations that are going to come together and they're going to be agreeing on how to worship, but they're not going to weld together politically. That will never happen again. You're never going to have the kind of mighty empire that you had under Alexander the Great or Nebuchadnezzar or Caesar um, or or Cyrus the Persian. Um, But you will have a very strong religious union that's going to happen and they're going to compel worship. They're not compelling taxes. Great. Thank you. All right. Hey, thank you so much. Appreciate your question. All right. We have, uh, I believe it's Donna listening from Connecticut or Dana. Dana, welcome to the program. Hi, you're on. Hello, Pastor Bachelor, And uh, I forgot his name. Um, Pastor Jean. That's all right. Okay. I have a question about what are your thoughts about the mandatory COVID-19 vaccine? Well, I've had several people, someone asked me that question during a Zoom worship I was doing yesterday. Um, I would be very uncomfortable with that just because, for one thing, I don't like any, being an American, I don't like any government agency telling me what I have to do with my body. That, I think, is unconstitutional. Um, But fortunately, if I can believe the news... The news did report on Friday that the president-elect said that they are not going to make the vaccine mandatory. So that, I think, caused a lot of people to breathe a collective sigh of relief. Um, So, you know, hypothetically, I could talk about what I would do. Um, I I would not be comfortable with the government, you know, mandating you've got to do something like that. Uh, I can understand why they would, you know. I don't agree with them mandating that parents have to get their children inoculated. Um, but I understand why they, you know, there's arguments for and against that. I do think that there's value in certain vaccines through history. There's no question that, you know, things like polio and diphtheria and other um, terrible diseases were arrested because of good vaccines. But, I, you know, from what I understand, and I'm only getting, you know, superficial information, um, the, the vaccines that are being developed now because they accelerated the process, that they actually got into some DNA-altering technology, and folks are saying, we're wondering what the long-term effects of this are. It is true. There have been drugs that at first everyone thought they were great, and a few years later they found out there were side effects. So you always you want to be as natural as possible, in my opinion. Um, but I, I'm not a doctor, so don't follow my medical advice. Okay, thank you. All right, hey, thanks so much, Donna. We appreciate your question. All right, we've got Carl listening in Oregon. Carl, welcome to the program. 
Yes, thank you. Can you hear me? Loud and clear. That's great. One of my questions, well, it's, it's more of a, I need a confirmation from you guys. You know, God's law is eternal. That's what the Bible says. You know, it's eternal. So that means the Ten Commandments have existed way before um, earth was created and even holy angels. So why would there be a Ten Commandments before anything was created? You know, let's say angels were already created, but the Ten Commandments say thou shalt not kill. They cannot kill each other or they, thou shalt not covet your, each other's wives. They couldn't marry. So even when earth was created, Adam couldn't kill Eve, even, even if he wanted to. So I just need confirmation that the Ten Commandments didn't come into play until Moses. But, I mean, it was some kind of moral law because yeah. you know, God knew it was a sin that Cain killed Abel. Is that right? Right. Well, let's talk about let's talk about that for just a second. The verses in the Bible that say God's law is eternal from everlasting to everlasting. There's always been law as long as there has been God, because keep in mind, the Ten Commandments are summarized in one word, love. God is love. The first four commandments deal with a love for your fellow, uh, love for a God. The last six deal with love for our fellow man. The first four commandments deals with the vertical love relationship. The last six commandments, it's the horizontal love relationship. So the laws that are governing uh, by love have always existed because God is love. So it was always wrong for an angel or any to be dishonest or to take innocent life, uh, so forth. The Ten Commandments are a, a more defined expression that may appeal more to our world, but they're still summed up in God's eternal law of love. So I don't know if that makes sense, but... Yeah, the Ten Commandments of, I think, the principle of the Ten Commandments, the law of love, has always been there. Uh, it, you know, angels may not have worried about uh, taking another angel's wife because angels don't marry. So some of those laws, if I love my neighbor, I will not violate covenants he's made of marriage. And so out of love for our neighbor, those laws really always existed because love has always been the law. You know, Pastor Doug, another law, just to illustrate that point, the principle of love is throughout all eternity, but... The Sabbath, we know that the Sabbath was made um, after six days of creation. God rested on the seventh day. He blessed it. He sanctified it. So the fourth commandment that talks about the Sabbath seems to be in particular given for those created on earth. Now, that doesn't mean the angels don't have a special day when they gather to worship. But as far as the earth is, is concerned, uh, the fourth commandment is relating to us based upon time and place. We hear God made us and it reminds us of his creative power. You know, we do have a lesson talking about the Ten Commandments. It's called Written in Stone, and uh, it covers some of these questions you have, Carl, as well as anyone else listening, about the Ten Commandments. Uh, did they only show up when um, God gave them to Moses to give to the children of Israel, or did they exist before that? You'll enjoy reading this. If you'd like to receive the study guide, the number to call is 800-835-6747, and ask for the study guide called Written in Stone. We've got Richard listening in Canada. Richard, welcome to the program. Hello, thank you for having me on. Thank you. And your question tonight? Well, my my question is, are Christians in the earth when the seven last plagues begin to fall? And my, and my reference for this question is uh, mainly Revelation chapter 15. It seems to indicate that the... 
that the redeemed are on the sea of glass in heaven when the seven angels go and pour out the seven last plagues upon the earth. And I believe that Christians will go through a a great tribulation in the future, but it seems to be indicating here that they seem to be out of the world when the wrath of God falls. Right. Well, uh, when the plagues fall, when it talks in Revelation 15, it says, I saw something like a sea of glass. And uh, on that, it says they've got those who've gotten the victory sitting on the throne. I think the beginning, it's reminding us before the plagues fall that uh, the redeemed are going to be, they're going to make it through the plagues. You know, this is a common feature that we see in Revelation. For example, Revelation chapter 14 describes the 144,000 standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion. And then it reads about the three angels' messages, which is God's last warning message to the world, and then the second coming. So it's not uncommon to first get a broad picture showing the redeemed, those who have overcome, and then it explains further what they overcame. Mm-hmm. So just like the 144,000, they're described as being victorious, and then it explains how they became victorious because of the blood of the Lamb, they kept the commandments, and so on. And then if you get to chapter 15, you're talking about the seven last plagues, and you have this group of people described standing on the sea of glass. Those are the ones who have overcome. They've got the seal of God. They've been protected during this time of the plagues being poured out. Another way that we know this is the seventh plague talks about this great earthquake and uh, a voice from the throne saying it is done. According to Revelation chapter 6, that is the earthquake that takes place at the second coming of Christ when the graves are opened up and the dead in Christ rise forth. So, you know, Revelation is not written in a chronological order and this confuses people. You have the seven churches, the seven seals, seven trumpets. It's sort of repeat and enlarge. Yep. So you can't strictly go on a chronological order when you look at Revelation. You know, and uh, one other thought on that, Richard, is you're wanting to know, will the redeemed be in the world during the seven last plagues? Were God's people in Egypt when the plagues fell on Egypt? Yes, they were. And of course, the answer is yes. And he preserved them through the plagues. Now, the first three plagues, they kind of sh- they suffered with the Egyptians, but God protected them through the last seven of the 10 plagues that fell on Egypt. So I'm not at all worried about the seven last plagues. Um, I believe that, you know, God can save us. It says, neither will any plague come nigh your dwelling. Only with your eyes will you see and behold the destruction. So you're there, but it doesn't affect you. He'll preserve us. That's Psalm 91, by the way. So hope that helps a little. And we appreciate your question, Richard. Thank you. All right. Again, Richard, you might enjoy that um, magazine we mentioned earlier, talking about a thousand years of peace, talking about the... uh, millennium and what happens just before that and afterwards if you'd like to receive that the number again is 800-835-6747 ask the study guide a thousand years of peace we have uh, damon listening from oklahoma city damon welcome to the program you're on the air yes hello can you hear me yes loud and clear hey hey how you guys doing this evening evening thank you for calling thank you i had a question about who was it with adam and eve when they sinned was it God the Father or was it Jesus? Um, because I know that um, God the Father could be there before they sin, but after they sin, how could God the Father be in the presence of sin? And I don't think it was Jesus because he wasn't, he hadn't came to earth. Because I know it said he walked in the midst of the garden and things like that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's what I was wondering. Well, good question. Uh, I personally think that it was Jesus. Because Christ is the one, all things were made, were made by him. And even the New Testament tells us that God committed creation unto the Son. 
and he's committed judgment unto the son. And it was Jesus who I think explained to Adam and Eve the plan of salvation after they sinned. So uh, Jesus also said, no man has seen the father at any time. So if no man has seen the father and if Adam was a man, well, that would mean that um, must have been Christ. God, God, the son is the one who Adam saw. So you're talking about Christ in his pre-incarnation state. Yeah. So Jesus, you know, even Jesus said, Abraham longed to see my day and he saw it. And that was before Christ was incarnate. Does that help at all, Damon? Uh, yeah, that's a, yeah, that was a great answer. I was just, I was just always wondering that. But thank you guys for that. All right. Hey, thanks so much. Appreciate your question. Do you feel as though your world is spiraling out of control? Or perhaps new life challenges are frightening you more than they should? Are you sinking while you're thinking? Excessive worry can consume you, eating you from the inside out, resulting in sickness, insomnia, and paralyzing fear. It can also damage relationships, ruin opportunities, and yes, diminish your witness for the gospel. Worry affects everybody differently, but it's all driven by fear. So how can you overcome a world full of reasons to be anxious? I'd like to recommend for you my new book, Finding Peace in a World of Worry. You'll discover a lifeline to victory, a place where you can cast your cares upon Christ and experience a serenity that isn't subject to your circumstances. Get your copy of Pastor Doug's Finding Peace in a World of Worry today. Call 800-538-7275 or visit afbookstore.com. Zachary's listening in Canada. Zachary, you on the air. Hi, good night. Evening. Uh, my question is, why wasn't Jesus married and isn't what does the Bible say about masturbation? Okay, two different questions, but <laughs> I think there may even be a connection there. Uh, we would assume that, you know, God created Jesus as a normal he was born incarnate as a normal, healthy man who would have all of the desires. And the Bible tells us that Jesus was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. Now, if Jesus said, if a man, and I'm sure it's true of a woman also, looks on the opposite sex and lusts in their heart, they can be committing adultery in their heart. And typically when a person is engaged in that activity, they're uh, lusting in their heart. And so that is described in the Bible as uh, an impure action. Uh, you know, I don't believe it's the unpardonable sin. But, um, yeah, God is calling us to purity and to holiness. And so, uh, and I think Jesus, he was faithful in every area. Why was Jesus not married? Well, because in a sense, Christ was married to the church. The Bible says, husbands love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for. I know that uh, people in Hollywood just find it so hard to believe that Jesus lived a pure life. They keep insisting that, well, he must have, um, he must have had an affair with Mary, and some are so sacrilegious as to say, well, it, he and the apostles had something happening, and it just makes me cringe when I, I hear that. And the reason they come up with those theories is they think, how is it possible for a man to live a sexually pure life? And they just can't, because they don't, they assume no one else can. And so they try to bring Jesus down to their level. But I think the Bible's pretty clear that he did no sin. All right. Well, thank you for your call, Zach. We've got Jennifer in Sacramento. Jennifer, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Good evening to you both. Evening. Um, God bless you both. 
I used to live in Roseville and I used to pass by your headquarters there, your old building, <laughs> every day at work. Oh, great. Well, you have to come visit the new one. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah, but since then, I have actually migrated to El Paso, Texas. So my phone number, I haven't changed yet. So it's still Sacramento, but I am currently uh, in El Paso, Texas, but I still watch your program. Can you tell me, I'm just really curious, what is the temperature down there right now? It is, it's actually kind of cool right now, sitting in the the 50s and 60s. I've I've been through El Paso many times, it's a nice place. All right, and your question. Yes, I have a two-part question. The first one is, um, my mom who was cremated, she was, when she passed, she, she was cremated, um, and part of her ashes ended up in the Pangasinan Sea, which is in the Philippines. Okay. And um, the other part my brother kept in an urn, which I believe is still with him. And um, when we when we get caught up in the air with Jesus and the dead will rise first, will my mom go? Um, because she wasn't buried, but she you know, she was cremated. I wonder, will she obtain a new body, even though it's like she's kind of fish food too at the same time? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah, no, that won't be a problem. Keep in mind, God is not resurrecting us using old material. Yeah. The Bible says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. Uh, those things are spiritual, are, are going to be spiritual. So, um, you know, there's a lot of faithful Christians through the ages that have been, you know, they've either died at sea and, you know, of course, their remains get scattered everywhere when they're buried at sea or they are burnt at the stake and they scatter their ashes. And some of the church fathers that are the persecutors were thinking all we have to do is um, burn them and scatter their ashes. And that's going to somehow keep God from resurrecting them. But nothing could be further from the truth. Um, and how God does it is still a mystery. But I have no doubt at all that he's going to be able to reassemble people. Actually, he's not using the old parts, but he'll be raising them up. He's got the uh, personal information of who your mother is on his hard drive, and he will download that into a glorified new body. Now, whether that is going to show up first in the Philippines or in North America, I can't tell you. You know, Pastor, it reminds me, and we'll get back to your second question, Jennifer. Um, it was Wycliffe, I believe, that was buried. He died. And he was buried. But then the church got so upset with him, sometime later they dug up his bones burned his bones, kind of ground them to ash or whatever was left, took the ashes, threw it in a river, and the river took the ashes to the sea. <laughs> they were trying to make sure that God couldn't rec- resurrect him. But, of course, God's not um, handicapped by that. He can resurrect people. Yeah, that's, it's silly for a, a man to think that uh, we could do something to prevent God. If he can make Adam from dirt yep. then and make him in his own image, and he can resurrect people. Good question. Thank you. Hope that helps a little, Jennifer. Did you have another part of your question? I did. Um, the other part is about my children. I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old. Their names are Moses and Elijah, and they both have autism. And I was wondering, um, I'm teaching them, you know, I, I'm wondering about when, you know, also when we pass away or, you know, I believe that Jesus is coming real soon. That's that's my personal belief. Yes. And, um, and, I'm I'm hoping and praying, and I don't know if I have to baptize my children. So I'm wondering, are they okay? Uh, will they be raptured up? I mean, maybe by that time they might be in their teens, they might be in their 
20s, I don't know. Yeah, the, the Lord judges us based upon our understanding. And the reason that young children are not responsible there before they reach the age of accountability is because their understanding, comprehension, their ability to respond to the gospel, it's just not there when their babies are very young. As they get older and their minds mature and they understand the gospel and they respond, they're accountable for knowing the difference between right and wrong and having the God-given power to make choices. You know, I don't know what the exact degree of uh, challenge is with your children, but you can just trust that God is going to be fair. There are some people that may be 50 years old, but God's going to judge them like they're six years old because, you know, they just never were able to uh, psychologically develop to that age of accountability. And so you don't need to worry about that if that's the case. And, um, you know, just trust that God is a merciful God. Uh, on the other hand, if they've got, you know, a light case of that and they're able to do studies and understand the gospel and, and be baptized. I know some some children, because of autism, they're terrified of getting their heads underwater. And I don't think God's going to, you know, God doesn't want parents to put them through something traumatic <laughs> to make them think it's going to be spiritually a blessing. So uh, just know God is a patient, loving, just God. Okay. And Jennifer and and you you continue to hold your children up in prayer, be a good example, and trust they'll be in the kingdom. All right. Thank you for your call. We've got Jimmy listening in Puerto Rico. Jimmy, welcome to the program. How's it going? Thank you so much for taking my call. Good evening. So I have a question. I do believe that we will be in heaven for a thousand years, um, but I've heard of the millennial theory where the earth, we will be here for 6,000 years. And I know it's, it's just a theory, but I was wondering um, how biblical that theory is. Well, you know, it remains. It's a, let me just explain for our friends that are listening, Jimmy. There's a a teaching that it goes back hundreds of years, and several reformers believed it. That because it tells us in both Psalms and in Second Peter chapter three, a day with the Lord is like a thousand years. And since the creation, when you add up the ages in the Bible, goes back approximately six thousand years. And then we're going to spend a thousand years living and reigning with God in heaven. They say, well, you know, when when our world gets to that six thousand year period that, uh, you know, Jesus will come and um, then we'll have like a thousand year Sabbath. So it's like the seven thousand year theory. Um, you know, I know a lot of people when when the world in 1996, it was six thousand years from the birth of Christ. They were sure that Jesus was going to come. And then folks started saying, well, maybe it's not the birth of Christ. Maybe it's going to be 6,000 years from the crucifixion. And then another group is saying, no, it's going to be 6,000 years from the baptism of Jesus. And uh, I think we need to be very careful about setting dates because, uh, for one thing, it could be sooner than we think because the Bible says, except those days be shortened, no flesh would be saved. And it could be later than we think because Second Peter also says, God is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish. I know that Jesus said in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man comes. So it sounds like everyone's going to be a little bit surprised. But uh, then again, he tells us that they should not overtake you as a thief. <laughs> so we should be looking at the signs. Anyway, um, so that's what the 6,000-year theory is. And, you know, I, I, I'd go back and do a little follow-up with you, Jimmy, but... We're looking now, we've got about a minute left uh, before we have to cut to our announcements. Also, keep in mind that so much of what we talk about during this broadcast, you can listen to again, and you can look at all the other material. Many of the books that we offer 
amazingfacts.org. That website has got just layers and layers of biblical information to keep you close to the Lord and help you be a better witness for Him. God bless, friends. We're going to study His Word together again next week. This broadcast is a previously recorded episode. If you'd like answers to your Bible-related questions on the air, please call us next Sunday between 7 p.m. and 8 p.m. Pacific Time. To take advantage of the offers you've heard on this broadcast, call us at 800-835-6747 or visit our website at amazingfacts.org. Tune in next time for more Bible Answers Live. Honest and accurate answers to your Bible questions. An international pandemic killing thousands, riots ripping communities apart, a global economic implosion. Many are wondering, is this the end of the world? Few question the military, economic, and technological might of the United States. So if we really are facing the last days, if these worldwide catastrophes are really harbingers of the end, Shouldn't we expect the United States to play a key role in the final events of Bible prophecy? The book of Revelation provides unmistakable clues. And to help you understand them, Amazing Facts is releasing America in Bible Prophecy. It's going to take you step by step in identifying the global forces at work in these last days. You might be surprised what the Bible really says. You owe it yourself to find out. So get yourself a copy of America in Bible Prophecy. For life-changing Christian resources, visit afbookstore.com or call 1-800-538-7275. I grew up mostly in New York City. I was sent to many different boarding schools. Most of these schools told me that there was no purpose in life. And I saw in my home people were not very happy, and I would think about suicide. Sharing a personal testimony can be one of the most powerful ways to win souls to Christ. That's why I'd like to invite you to discover and share a new presentation of my richest caveman testimony. It's now available on a special DVD from Amazing Facts. We've even included the award-winning Kingdoms in Time documentary that recently aired on the History Channel. To get your copy of The Richest Caveman, visit afbookstore.com or call 800 800- Five three eight seven two seven five. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast. We hope you understand your Bible even better than before. Bible Answers Live is produced by Amazing Facts International, a faith-based ministry located in Granite Bay, California.